And I think now we can think uh, that cost-benefit analysis is part of that yeah. and that it is itself, its, its benefits don't outweigh its costs. And totally. what's ironic is like they never turn that on themselves, right? They never turn themselves on oh, themselves. Oh, no way. <laughs> To the death panel. Today, we're joined by Frank Pasquale. Frank is one of the sharpest researchers of the legal regulation of algorithmic ranking, scoring, and sorting systems, among many other topics. So it's a real treat to have him today. Hi, Frank. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for coming. Oh, thanks for having me. It's a real pleasure to be here. I've, I've enjoyed many past broadcasts, and so thank you. So we, we asked you on to talk about some of the topics that were raised in a recent piece of yours, which was the introduction to a symposium hosted by the Law and Political Economy Project blog, which, um, you know, basically the theme of it is sort of challenging the future of cost benefit analysis. And I was wondering to start us off, Frank, do you mind briefly outlining for listeners, you know, what is the symposium and what these pieces are kind of trying to argue? Sure. So we brought in a number of scholars um, who are very interested in the problems of cost-benefit analysis and policy evaluation. And just to give a really concrete example of this, um, although we focused on the White House and the um, Office of Management and Budget, uh, but I want to give a concrete example from a healthcare perspective that's in an article on the uh, Congressional Budget Office. And this article was looking at um, how the CBO would score legislation that would say give um, uh, that, that would give a pneumonia vaccine to the elderly. And according to the article, you know, the, the under current CBO methodology, you'd have to account for and pay for the fact that something terrible would happen. And what would that be? It would be that the elders would live longer and therefore would cost more money to the Oh, no! No! <laughs> Man, we really do love the CBO on this podcast, but, but that goes so much deeper even than the, the cuts that we've made. That is that is really mind-blowing. It, well, it is. It, yeah, it's where I start, you know, because I just feel like it's so mind-blowing and it's so out there. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's the perfect example of, you know, what, what is cost-benefit analysis? It it results in these sort of wild um, assumptions, and I I like the way in your in your piece, Frank, you frame cost-benefit analysis as a policy tool as this kind of expert constraint on on political will. And I was wondering if you could get into like what the idea of that actually is. Yeah. So this idea of, I mean, I think as as someone that teaches administrative law. One of the things that I try to get across is why is a bureaucracy legitimate? When mm -hmm. HHS or CMS makes a decision, why do we take that as a legitimate decision? And usually there's three foundations, right? One is that the head of the agency was appointed by the president and the president was democratically elected. Although, you know, we can, we can uh, mm. <laughs> put quotes around dem democratically elected for, for, um, <laughs> and, but, but we, we did have an election and, and, you know, many of the presidents were, you know, pretty clearly the winners. 
Um, and secondly, that it acts in a legal, legally regular way. It doesn't just randomly do things before it makes a rule. It has notice, it has comment, people can comment on it, uh, it has to answer the comments, um, all those sorts of aspects of legal regularity. And the third foundation of legitimacy after democracy and law is the expertise. The mm -hmm. idea is that people running these programs actually know something about them. They have a deep experience, knowledge, et cetera. And what's fascinating about cost-benefit analysis is that it is sort of a form of meta-expertise. And I, I just posted <laughs> this right. on SSRN, which is like, how do you make sure the experts at the agency are themselves being constrained by another group of experts who are the economists and the quantitative analysts? Mm -hmm. That's where I think it's really troubling, right? I think it's really troubling that we're in this world where, like, you have expertise already in the agencies, but then somehow um, economics has irrigated to itself and quantitative evaluation of cost benefits have irrigated to itself the idea that, oh, we are the experts about the experts and about how far uh, their proposal should go. You know, I'm really glad that you put it that way, Frank, because I've been I've been teaching this class on on policy analysis. And, you know, I would say that like the average student who comes in, like has the question, I think a lot of people who are, you know, pissed off about, uh, the current state of things have is like, why can't we have nice things? Right. Uh, you know, uh, and, and like, not just like, like utopian fantasies, but like, why can't we have like pretty vanilla, nice things like, you know, paid family leave or, you know, affordable housing or Medicare for all or whatever the case uh, may be. Anything. Right. And, and like the standard like political <laughs> science response to that is like, well, it's just, you know, it's politics, it's power, you know, which is which is right. You know, I think the thing that you learn in like doing policy analysis and teaching it is that like it's also policy analysis that like while it's presented as this thing, you know, by the textbook is like the most natural thing in the world. Like you put on one shoe at a time, you put your pants on one leg at a time. Um <laughs> It actually has this way of really stacking the deck against doing certain kinds of things. Like when you are asked to like confront the trade-offs, you're asked to confront them for a particular reason, which is like that we don't want to do one particular kind of thing. <laughs> and and yes. I think it's often, you know, worth like, and I, I always try to remind my students that you know, this, this thing has a history. This is not a, a sort of natural um, way of, uh, you know, analyzing things. It, it's a way of like maybe operationalizing um, or like formalizing what, what other people might call like wisdom, but it often does like really the, like the opposite of that. And, and so, you know, I, I think it's worth like the, the symposium really situates cost benefit analysis as this thing that is very rooted in this history of neoliberalism. Um, but it's something that becomes naturalized over time. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how that happens. Excellent. Uh, yes. And, and I, I and I particularly have a, a very concrete example that maybe we can expand on or, or discuss further, which is, you know, in thinking about, um, uh, let's say that you have an agency like Department of Transportation that needs to allocate money and it can allocate money either to highways or it could allocate it to airports or, or, or I'm sorry, bus stops or airports. Right. Could it be, could make more bus stops or it could make it easier to get to the airport. And then the question is, well, how can we value those two different things? And then some bright uh, policy analysts say, well, how about uh, the value of saving people's time? And then the question is, well, how much is the time of the various people worth? And someone else says, well, what, how much are they paid? <laughs> how so much are people these, worth? <laughs> right. <laughs> right. And, and of course, the law does this in some other areas too, right? I mean, we have those, those awful stories about the 9-11 Compensation Commission, which was based on 
you know, giving much, much more to the bond traders than to the people who are working as cooks in the restaurant, et cetera. Very troubling and happens in tort law too. But in this policy analysis, like the concrete outcome of that valuation of time was that the people at the airports, um, their time was valued at $63 an hour and the time of the people at the bus stops was valued at $23 an hour. And so this, this idea that, you know, you could, and, and, and I think that when you talk about naturalizing it, yeah, there's just these assumptions that just say, well, you know, how are we going to do it? Well, they all, all the only number that we have, we need a number, all the number we, right, we have right. is the number of dollars that they make per hour on average. Um, and that happens. And then, you know, but nobody was thinking about at various points, the ways in which that just magnifies existing inequalities and unfairnesses. Mm-hmm. And this was from a, a post in the symposium by Zach Liskow, who's a really interesting um, law prof at Yale. And he was pointing out that like in, in, in the UK, it's actually, he, he said it's the, it's the opposite, that actually things that interventions that are meant to make the life of the persons with lower incomes are, are more highly valued than those that intervene to improve the life of the higher income. Of course, we, I don't want to get into uh, that as means testing, you know, but which I, <laughs> right. <laughs> right, right, right. I, know, I know we all have many issues with, but, you know, it, 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 to the extent <laughs> that the philosophy is built into some form of valuation, it would seem that it would be much more rational to go in that direction to do things that help the poor more than the, than the rich, yeah. Right. And I mean, it, it really comes down to sort of a preference for what type of common sense you want to apply to policy analysis, right? At the end of the day. That's right. Yeah. I mean, I think that a lot of things get assumed to be common sense mm-hmm. um, too quickly. I mean, another classic example is, uh, and this I think is even more dramatic, is for OSHA or an agency that wants to prevent harms in the workplace, to say what are the what's the worker willing to accept to accept a risk, and so you know they they might say well we see that the uh, we have a, two jobs, one of which involves a fifty percent higher rate of falling and breaking a limb, mm-hmm. and it seems like those people you hold everything else equal, so we have to trust them that they did this, um, and those people are paid thousand dollars a year more. So then the idea is okay, well um, that we can put the value of reducing someone's risk of breaking a limb by 50% at $3,000 a year, which is pretty low, right? Yeah. You know, but but it comes out of this very strange. And, and of course, the other side of this is, you know, if you imagine a, a group of workers that are much richer, right, that are making two or three times that, then all of a sudden those same differentials could lead to valuing two or three times more the safety intervention in their workplace because of the the just the, the, the base changes. So these are all like very highly contestable modes of estimating value that just get called common sense, but they're not really. Well, it's, it's interesting because, uh, you know, we only start requiring uh, the use of policy analysis, it, you know, in this formal way in the federal government uh, using cost benefit analysis in like 19... 19- 81 uh, in this like Reagan executive order. And like, it's interesting for me because my, when my students come in, like one, one of the other questions, they're like, well, how do we make policy? Like, clearly there's some things that we want. Like, how do we illustrate that they're important? Uh, how do we like make that part of, uh, part of the, the discussion? And, you know, that this very narrow box of, of, of cost benefit analysis, like emerges in this specific context, right? It's, you know, the Reagan administration, it's 1981. It's the idea that you have to show that your regulations benefits uh, outweigh their costs. And, you know, of course, like as this piece, this really nice piece by Beth Pop Berman, who, whose work I, I absolutely love, that's uh, in your symposium, um, illustrates is that like, yes, it is you know, a big part of the story of, of cost benefit analysis and its rise is like conservatives and this 
push against the regulatory state. But the other side of it, and I think an equally important side of it, is this sort of technocratic um, liberal perspective where (laughs) you have sort of like liberal technocrats who are like, this is the way that we're going to like professionally like do um, policy analysis. And they sort of keep it around uh, more or less. And, you know, I, you know, I have lots of like sort of well-meaning, I would say like friends who lean more in this, you know, ideological direction who are like, look, you know, um, I understand, you know, there, there are things that you want and you're like this naive, like idealistic, um, guy, but like, uh, policy analysis really just is an attempt to say like, you don't want to like misallocate money. You don't want to spend on things that are, uh, you know, don't really have an effect, uh, or actually do more harm than good. And in my response to that is, yeah, absolutely. We don't want to do that. Um, you know, we, you know, we don't want to Im- implement programs that actually hurt the people they're, they're supposed to serve, but I don't necessarily see that, uh, to do that, you have to have this very formalized uh, cost benefit uh, approach that really in the process of, you know, uh, allowing itself to play out uh, does harm to a lot of the things that might actually be benefits of public policy and where there's this, I think, burden of proof, especially on new untried things um, that we they, they there's sort of a, a depressing effect that they, they can't sort of uh, go into uh, effect. But the broader point is, is that there are some and you see this theme come out in the symposium, there's some things that are really deeply irrational about this process that that is touts itself as being like this really rational way of making decisions. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about uh, those those sorts of elements of, of cost benefit analysis. Yeah. You know, I mean, I think one big reason why it's not rational is that it is so skewed towards stopping regulation. And that to me is the fundamental issue. It's that it's that, or one of many fundamental issues, but it's, it's, it's so important to look at cost benefit analysis and how it's been used in practice because the defenders will so often say, all we're trying to do is to make sure that there's, we know there's a limited regulatory budget and we can only allocate so many hours of effort by the government to certain um, uh, goals. And let's make sure that we're maximizing the benefit relevant to the relevance of the cost. Now, what I find so interesting is that in the Carter administration, apparently an earlier version of cost benefit analysis before Reagan said there is a statutory goal and you must meet the goal um, in a way that is mindful and tries to avoid having costs um, outweigh benefits, right? And I think the problem is that nowadays it seems as though that the goals of agencies themselves are getting driven by this, or it's at least they're they're worried about being having the regulatory proposals being sent back if they don't do it correctly. I have a, I have a quick question. So so do you mean to say that 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 first version of cost benefit under Carter was like a requirement that things have a point? Yeah. You know what I mean. Yes, yeah. I just want to clarify. Okay, I think it's so interesting that that to me, cost-benefit analysis really seems to have replaced um, end goals in terms of policy design, right? When we talk about, you know, Medicare for all, 
for example. So many of the conversations about Medicare for All never get into the reasons why it needs to happen. It just gets stuck in this conversation about the pay for and whether or not it's politically feasible because Quite of literally the cost part. Yeah, the cost, yeah. right? Cost only analysis. And yeah. then and then the discussion gets wrangled into the conversation around, well, Medicare for All saves money. And then it's like a conversation about what what healthcare really costs and why it costs that way right, and but hospital then, pricing. But this is indicative, though, because I think what you're pointing out, right, is that like they're right in in just that you've already lost the game because in right. going to, oh, but actually it saves money. You've gone into the cost benefit analysis framework. Exactly. And just in that, just like kind of the transition that you're talking about, basically, you've gone from okay, this policy has to have a point and it has to like do this in a way that maybe is not to, you know, in a way that like gets the benefit without dragging in some unwarranted costs. <laughs> right. And then it becomes just like, okay, well actually the, the metric of evaluation is the point. Right. Right. Exactly. And, and I think also that that is, it's true about by getting drawn in. And I think as well, the, they are so bad at accepting quantifications of benefits. So, you know, we all know the right. huge problems of bureaucratization in private health insurance, right? I mean, just the the incredible number of pre-authorizations and battling over bills and confusion over bills and all the rest. And I have rarely have ever seen uh, a sort of CBO type score or other um, analysis <laughs> of Medicare Advantage that takes that seriously, right. you know? And, and, and to come back to that example I gave about the, the pneumonia vaccinations for the elderly, um, I mean, to me, one of the main things would be like, what's the benefit to the to grandchildren that their grandparents are alive, right? But the moment you bring up something like that and say, okay, what are the benefits there? It's not that not only will I think most of the advocates of sort of traditional cost benefit analysis try to sweep that aside and say, oh, well, that's um, sentimental or what have you. <laughs> they won't even acknowledge the co benefits of say having uh, the grandparents there. And not spending the money on childcare, right? If to right. extend grandparents were talking about childcare, so there's such a, a, a dismissal and narrowing of the concept of benefits, um, and that's why. I mean, I, I did a symposium. I helped organize a symposium of academics and uh, legislative aides and uh, think tank folks and, and advocacy groups on cost benefit analysis and financial regulation because I was terrified if they started doing it there. You know, it's it's it would just completely upend the financial regulatory state as well. Um, and so it, it, it does really feel to me like it is um, a very biased form of evaluation that just really rules out and um, uh, keeps us from understanding the full array of benefits that are out there. Um, yeah. And, and I should have mentioned earlier for the Carter point, they were into cost effectiveness analysis, not mm. cost benefit mm-hmm. analysis. And I think that was a softer version of it, where at least we're saying, right. OK, let's be cost effective, but let's not say uh, trash or, or avoid or um, give up on big goals just in the name of saying, well, the narrow definition of benefits doesn't match the expansive definition of costs that seem to be uh, um characteristic of these these evaluations. Now, I, I'm curious if we could get into a little bit, because I feel like if I'm the listener right now and I maybe don't know very much about cost-benefit analysis, I might be like, at this point, be pretty convinced that it's a bunch of bullshit, but wondering like how we got here and why we ended up using mm-hmm. it in the first place. Excellent. Yes. And I think that the, that the history here is fascinating. And I think that, you know, Beth Pop Berman's post at our symposium and uh, Lisa Heinzerling has been working on this for decades, really point out the uh, how closely tied 
the institutionalization of cost-benefit analysis was to Reagan deregulatory goals. And so Reagan had an executive order. I think it was 12866. It was uh, one of these regulatory orders that he um, had come out with, an executive order, uh, that really emphasized the use of this cost-benefit analysis as a constraint on the regulatory state. Um, and then, essentially, what, what happens, what was kind of uh, fascinating about this is that, you know, you could have gone in two directions with the Clinton administration. One way would have been to have said, no, we're repudiating that, and we're just going to uh, continue on with a more um, uh, expansive no notion of what uh, benefits of regulation can be and of the goals of the regulatory state. But instead, Clinton embraced it. And I think that what's how surprising. Yeah. Yeah. And it's just and, and, and fascinatingly, you know, one of the leading intellectuals that led, I think, Obama to re-embrace it. So Bush, of course, loves it in 2000 to 2008. And then Obama mm -hmm. has the choice again. And Cass Sunstein was really at the was the head of his <laughs> office of regulatory affairs, you know. And uh, Sunstein, it, when, in 1981, apparently recognized the problems, right? In 1981, he made an academic argument that essentially, um, if you apply a rigid form of cost-benefit analysis, that's going to be really bad in the context of Medicaid, the Endangered Species Act, civil rights laws, and laws <laughs> in protecting people with disabilities. And we should get into the disabilities post as well, and the angle as well at some point. Um, uh, because they weren't really about efficiency. They were about trying to make sure that we promoted certain social values. But by 2009, 2010, you had Cass Sunstein like very vigorously <laughs> defending cost-benefit analysis. And there's this wonderful article by, uh, I think, the, the, Frumkin, I forget his first name, a, a Washington Post reporter, but it's at HuffPost on uh, called the ambivalent regulator, and it's about Cass Sunstein. And, <laughs> and, what a title! And, just calling balls and strikes, you know, just more, just yeah. a, a field of umpires. The void of ideology. Uh. <laughs> no, and he and, and and at some point, like it seems as though the the highlight of his day or his week, right? I forget what is that. He managed God, to yeah. sort of talk to OSHA and get them to take off one question in a questionnaire that was on ergonomic practices of the workplace or something. You know, it's just something I was thinking to myself, yeah, you know, you have this, this great opportunity, your, your you know, democratic sweep, one of the few trifectas in history that, you know, the Dems have a, you know, and, and this is what people are thinking about is like, you know, this, and so I feel like that what happened is that, you know, you have this sort of Chicago-fied, Chicagoized uh, Cass Sunstein, um, you know, influenced by the University of Chicago, Neil folks, sort of promoting this idea. And uh, then, you know, the, but the irony is, I think what's fascinating is that what under Trump, what you see is that in some areas, the benefits became so obvious that, you know, it, it became so clear that uh, deregulation would lose even with cost-benefit analysis. But then you have Trump doing very strange things with cost-benefit analysis or just, you know, trying to completely eliminate certain co-benefits from the consideration. So, you know, um, uh, like, for example, if you had we're thinking about uh, environmental regulation and uh, climate change, stopping climate change, we now know that to the extent you do that, you're also going to save thousands, perhaps tens of thousands of lives uh, from lung cancer if you do uh, um, anti-fossil fuel type of stuff to, to decarbonize. Um, and one of the big initiatives under Trump was to say, well, you can't count those benefits 
in your regulatory analysis of the climate change, you can only count the benefits that would be you know, directly attributable to climate change, uh, to, to averting climate change. So, you know, and I think that the point of, per, of Berman's post in the symposium is to say that at so many turns, there have been really uh, bizarrely uh, aggressive efforts by right-wing Right, right-wing figures within Republican administrations to really tilt cost-benefit analysis toward a deregulatory uh, approach. Whereas when you have the um, Democrats in power, there's just an, an extreme uh, dithering, you know, and, and, and yeah. they, they don't have a plan. <laughs> you know, like, well, it occurs to me that like one thing that happens, right, is that like it for like for conservatives, they understand it as a tool of power. They're like, yes, mm-hmm. yes. we want to do this thing and it doesn't matter what tool we use. We're going to use the one that's like the easiest to use. And like, yeah, OK, this will this will like accomplish our goals. But for like liberals, they, they come in and they're like, well, uh, you know, we just want to like get the right answer. Uh, we, we don't <laughs> these like, are the boundaries it's like we want to be box. responsible. Yeah, these are the, like we want to like be responsible. And then what you do, if you've ever like I've been like teaching my, you know, just this like little toy, like cost benefit analysis, like, OK, how do you do the cost? I don't know. You get a couple quotes from suppliers or whatever. And then like, how do you do the benefits? It's like, well, you have a lot of choices to make. And already that slows <laughs> you down, even if the choices are pretty easy. But then the other thing is. Because you're constrained by just thinking about what the direct benefits are, and then like if you want to do any indirect benefits, it gets a lot harder. The analysis gets harder and harder the more indirect the benefits are, and the more causally like related they are. That like any idea that even when we do this stuff, that we're providing an accurate idea of the benefits <laughs> is like absurd. So like this is the problem is if you're caught up in in this liberal sort of like technocratic, I should say, headspace where basically policy analysis for you has been shorn of any of its ideological. You don't see it as ideology. You're just like, this is how I do my job well. And, (laughs) you know, and it's like, no, like you doing your job well has some really big, you know, it's like uh, some really huge uh, problems involved with it. Um, And, uh, you know, it's it's I think the one value of the symposium is like you illustrate what those are. And I think the disability example is like particularly important. It is very important. And actually, before I get to it, I just wanted to say that like in terms of this question of, you know, seeing and this this is a deep divide, I think, actually, within the law and political economy community. I and mean, I think that I, I, I didn't mention that the host of the symposium is the law and political economy blog. And to me, it is one of the most important intellectual movements in law going on right now, because for decades, there's been this hegemony of law and economics, and very often what was taken to be economics and law and economics was a pretty conservative version of it. It was almost entirely microeconomics, almost no attention to macroeconomics. Um, <laughs> and, and, and we're trying to, you know, with the LPE group, we're trying to counterbalance that. Um, and I think your point about, you know, doing the job well versus realizing the realities of power reminds me as well of the problem of um, gerrymandering. We've had Eric Holder saying for a long time, well, the Democratic position should be um, we're going to have these where we can get power. We're going to have uh, neutral uh, redistricting, redistricting commissions. Right. And the problem is that, like, if you have one side of the political order saying the Democrats are saying, let's try to find neutral redistricting commissions. Meanwhile, in 24, 25 states, you've got essentially uh, Republicans just derrymanning to the hilt. You know, and I realize it's some Democratic states, they gerrymander to the hilt, too. But nevertheless, if it's imbalanced in that way, because of the reality of power being self-reinforcing, 
all of a sudden that gets out of control, yeah. right? And you have places like Wisconsin, you know, as you experience, right? I don't know if there there can be an uh, a democratic legislature in Wisconsin again. I mean, I, I, I hope that's a possibility. Yep. I, I don't think so. No, I don't think so, right? I mean, because you'd have to have, what, a 65% vote share or something? And so, you know, yeah. you'd have to have some uh, absurd, absurdly high vote share. And so then when you lose a few, once you lose a certain number of states and also the, the congressional redistricting is going in a certain way. So, you know, every one of those states also is, is putting like six out of eight or nine out of 13, as in North Carolina, Republicans as opposed to Democrats to Congress, even if the vote share is like 50, 50, um, then it's sort of over. Right. And and I think the problem is that people don't, I mean, I don't want to say it's all over, but I mean, it's, it's, I, I mean, it's hard for me to say a way out. Um, and I think that's the that's the issue is that so much of the technocratic, expertocratic, um, neoliberal center, especially the progressive center left, was just completely unaware or unattuned to those dynamics. And it just keeps happening. But yeah, yeah. But I but I apologize for that that digression. But I just think it's it's important to sort of see that like one can't you can't sort of have uh, have only one side of the political spectrum trying to you know, find the policy science of um, cost-benefit analysis. If it turns out that every time the other side gets in power, every single, uh, it seems to be uh, consistently pushed in, in their own political direction. Yeah. No, I mean, no, absolutely. I mean, this, I think, was one of the reasons that, I mean, one, one of the reasons we wanted to talk about this on the show, but also I think one of the reasons we talk about a lot of the things that we uh, cover frequently from time to time, the things, I mean, to use the, terminology that maybe um phil used earlier like some of these things which are absolutely like ideological apparatus is just the way that they do get naturalized as you know the the way that they get naturalized as these tools that are the limits of reality or something mm-hmm. whereas mm-hmm. uh so much of whereas by sort of like following the you know following the rules as written or by sort of uh utilizing cost benefit analysis off the shelf without, um, you know, thinking critically about it seemingly at all, basically without having, I mean, to, you know, use your example of gerrymandering, it's not simply that like the game, you know, you were saying like, oh, it's not that the game is over or whatever, but it's more like actually, well, sort of, if you approach it without realizing that the tool is ideological, it's like you've lost before you even realize the game started. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. And, And if you approach it without saying that, like, everybody has to be playing by the same rules, right? And to me, part of the crisis, what also helped uh, initiate this, and this is, this was not Lisa Heinzerling's contribution to our symposium, but she has a fantastic article that was a speech that she gave, I think, to to attorneys, um, where she talked about the, um, the, the use of cost-benefit analysis was so irregular in the Trump administration that unless there's some way of guaranteeing that it's going to be applied in every administration in a consistent way, you know, we should really think of getting rid of it. And and the problem though is that because, and this is the original, this is the original sin in terms of the political illegitimacy of cost-benefit analysis, it gets put in place via this uh executive order in each presidential administration, right? Um, but the problem is like, at least with a rule, if you go through the rulemaking process, it, it is the a properly promulgated legislative rule by a particular agency is valid through administrations until another administration actually goes through the effort of doing the same level of effort and notice and comment and all the rest to get rid of the rule. Whereas these executive orders, they just sort of like, they, they really, any president could just get rid of it entirely. And right. to my mind, is so far is since we've had, I think at least twice under Bush 
and under the second under the son Bush um, uh, or W. Bush and and under Trump of real distortions of cost benefit analysis. I think the Democrats have to say, well, we can't play this game anymore. Right. We're not going to play this game where we are trying to be as, you know, um, uh, careful as possible and, you know, trying to maintain all of these different levels of scrutiny here um, when it's sort of thrown out the window in many respects in the GOP administrations. And that I think is, is another big problem in terms of this self-limitation of the administrative state um, that is, is, it's not wise to do it anymore. I'd be really curious to hear like where you feel like the, the commitment to holding on to it comes from, because there, mm. there is this like, there's this belief, right. That like, we can't lose it because cost benefit analysis is, you know, sound economic science, right? Like this is like (laughs) rationality incarnate. And, and, um, I just, I'd be curious to hear, like, obviously there's no like answer as to like, why are we, why are we like nostalgically clinging to the safety blanket of CBA? But I'm Malt just shop very, and CBA. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. But I'm, I'm very curious to hear like what your personal take on that is. You know, I think that there's this um, belief that the numerical is ultimately superior to the quantitative. And this is actually something that goes a lot in my, my other, I have lots of other work on um, artificial intelligence and law and technology law and policy. And what I see repeatedly is a sense that, well, either um, uh, mathematics, quantitative uh, evaluation, or computation, all of those are superior to language and us talking and sort of a democratic uh, group getting together and debating things and then taking a decision, right? That there has to be something underneath that decision um, and that numbers could, should be it. So I think that's really where it's coming from. I think that there's this, uh, um, and, and I think it's also coming from uh, uh I think that a lot of the people that that should know better think, well, I can demonstrate, I can play this game and win it. Yeah. And I think that's the other problem. Totally. You know, people really think like I can play the game and win it. I can demonstrate the the values and quantify them just as well as the, uh, as the other side can. And I think that's, but it just ends up the problem as well. And here's one other thing that I think is so deleterious about it is if as again, as someone that teaches administrative law, Every individual thing I teach about administrative law, about a constraint on how an agency can act, each of those makes sense individually. But then when I show the students sort of like this massive chart of all the steps an agency has to take to make a rule, like imagine the you know HHS making a particular rule on health privacy or something like that. Then they see, oh my God, it's like there's this huge process that really is gets in the way of good and efficient governance. And I think now we can think uh, that cost-benefit analysis is part of that yeah. and that it is itself, its its benefits don't outweigh its costs. And totally. what's ironic is like they never turn that on themselves, right? They never turn themselves on themselves. Oh, no way. Hell yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, yeah. the, the, the thing that I, you know, that, the sort of the godfather of of like one aspect of cost benefit analysis, Kip Viscusi, you know, yes. he has this huge because like you know in early in the early two thousands the under Bush the EPA lowers the value of statistical life, which is used to calculate like the benefits of, of of pollution regulations and things like that. They lower it, and then like people naturally freak out uh, for a variety of reasons, and then you know there's the this question like should Congress actually set this value uh, or should this be determined like democratically? And Viscusi 
flips out and it's just like you you can't have these irrational politicians come in here and tell me the guy who came up with like this like approach to doing this like you can't have them like tell economic science like they don't know systematic review like they don't you know know how to like assign these these values you like know that, nothing you're, of my work you're, yeah Sorry. exactly like you're gonna like you're gonna come in and you're gonna muck up this you know uh, this this perfect sort of like rational process which we should there are some things we should be he's like essentially it's like you wouldn't want like congress to determine uh like all kinds of other things about science like you wouldn't want to determine like what a uh you know just like relabeling things with with no basis in like fact at all and i think the thing is like yeah but this is ultimately somebody gave these people the authority to do this stuff in the first place right like at some point like we have to be able to say like no, actually, you've you've violated whatever contract we had, and like we got to go back and rewrite it. Yeah, you know, and I think that this is, and I think what's also so troubling about some of these areas is that you know you've got this. Um, what happens is, as well, I think, is that in the sort of center left technocratic sphere, there is an effort to prove one's value and worthiness and goodness through listening to everything and going through everything. And I mean, I think this, but, but the problem is that at some point you have to have a vision of just the good society that you want and move forward on it, right? And yes. I think part of that, I mean, the positive version of that is Karen Tanney's, uh, uh, where she talked about a disability perspective. And she said, you know, isn't it strange that we have this situation where like people with disabilities are having to say, well, yes, we're we're costly, but our benefits are are greater than the costs. Yeah. And she's saying, well, actually, this is a, a terrible frame in some ways, or it's it's a troubling frame uh, because you know we want to say I, I, we may well have the vision. I think a much more positive way of putting things is like, I want to have a vision of a totally inclusive society, and that part of even before we get to the stage of having people assert claims or not asserting claims, they should be included in full members of society. Um, but I think the problem is that, you know, you have on, on the, the technocratic side, Cass Sunstein has this really bizarre paper called They Ruined Popcorn on the Costs and Benefits what? of Mandatory Labels. Okay. And what? What happens in this paper is someone, I think he's, you know, discussing his work or something, and um, someone comes, uh, 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 a, a one government official says about mandatory calorie labels, they ruined popcorn because you know, it, it, perhaps it's the idea that um, I once had this, you know, incredible amount of pleasure eating the popcorn and it was unalloyed by the pain of awareness of its calorie count. Oh my but God. now that I know the calorie count, you know, uh, that, that pleasure is I can't eat the whole thing anymore and just enjoy it. I've got this weight on my, my shoulders, you know, and, and the same thing came up by the way, with smoking, there were people that were pushing at one point, FDA was pushing that all cost benefit analysis with smoking um, should include the hedonic loss of pleasure of people that like were loving smoking, but now they can't, they weren't smoking, et cetera. And this is you know, <laughs> very <laughs> Chicago. Love to see the government getting involved in matters of philosophy. Great. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it's, it's primary purview. Yeah. So, so, you know, it's, whereas I can say to Sunstein about the, about the mandatory labels, Look, I don't care if it makes 99% of the people in the country like sad every time they eat. I want to know what's in the food. And we as a society like can just say even and of course I guess it was 99% then it wouldn't be a democracy. But like even if it makes 30-40% of people sad to see the number of calories on the label, we just can decide as a democracy 
We want that information out there. We deserve the information. It's out there despite its consequences, you know, and similarly with smoking, you know, you could just sort of say, well, this is a form of pleasure that like the society doesn't necessarily value, you know, and that, that to me is like, it's not, it's certainly not a science, right? When we're talking about whether we're going to count <laughs> lost pleasure from smoking as a, you know, cost, that's not a, any sort of scientific or academic um, analysis. It's ultimately one that's about values and it's about sort of ideally democratic values like uh, there and, and not and certainly not something you can quantify. Yeah. And, and I think, too, like the, the problem then becomes like as these things are enshrined into law and as the material effects of them like play out on the population. Right. Like these things tend to grow and build on each other, like upon generation after generation. I'm just thinking of like the way that cost benefit analysis has been used to, for example, like shrink the social safety debt and reduce like welfare payments or, you know, the, the ways in which cost benefit analysis has prevented uh, cost of living increases, right, for social security recipients and the ways that we frame um, all of these policies as needing to to meet this end goal of being like revenue neutral, right? Like that does such a immeasurable harm that is never going to be at all factored into any of these calculations at the end of the day. And we're kind of like, we just build this like language of economics that, that is supposed to be like, um, like more pure or, or somehow, um, morally like, okay, because it's unbiased or whatever, you know, it's, it's just so strange to me that, that, it's this myth of like neutrality persists, you know? I agree. And I think that this, and I'm so glad you brought up uh, budget neutrality because this is another layer of LPE work that I'm doing now. And I mean, I have not written a lot on this stuff because I just have, um, I have so many other projects that just have taken, (laughs) uh, you know, we all know the feeling, you know, but on MMT, I mean, part of what I think is really liberating when we have people talk about modern monetary theory is that they are sort of saying, look, um, we can't sort of arbitrarily say the government at some debt to GDP ratio is going to fall apart. Right. We can't say, oh, at 100% debt to GDP, it's all over. Because, I mean, look at Japan. It's like, what, 250, 300% debt to GDP, and right. they're doing pretty well. Um, and, and I think you've, we've got to have a much richer conversation, including about inflation. Okay, And then also, like, what's inflating? Right. Sectoral inflation. I mean, are there forms of inflation that we find really troubling? Are there forms that are like, you know, who cares? Like, it's not so bad if the, if the price of yachts is going up or whatever. Um, <laughs> all of those things, I think, are, are really pointing out the political values at the center of this right. stuff. And, and, you know, to say budget neutrality. And of course, the other thing that, you know, with budget neutrality, it never gets applied to war or to, of course not. you know, no one did a cost benefit analysis of the Iraq war before we went into it. Right. It was just like, oh, well, it's an existential threat. Well, now COVID was an existential threat. Climate change is an existential threat. Many things are existential threats. And we have to, I think, be able to um, break out of the straitjacket of these sort of short-term budgetary. Because again, you know, even thinking about climate in particular, it's just to me so clear that we either do really dramatic things now and we finance them dramatically now, or we just face 
decades and decades of weather disasters that just, you know, are going to, that are truly going to undermine the productive potential, potential of the economy. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, it's funny, like the, if the dream of uh, the sleep of reason, like produces monsters, like the sleep of cost benefit analysis produces Glenn Greenwald saying, <laughs> you, you don't really understand how to regulate COVID because you don't, you know, you didn't apply cost benefit analysis. Oh, but yeah. I mean, <laughs> but like, this is, this is the thing is like for anyone saying that like the Biden administration is like the end of neoliberalism. It's like you could very much look at what they're doing on regulation and say no, because they they (laughs) haven't really tackled. They had some executive order on like modernizing regulatory review, but they haven't really done anything on this. But this is sort of what I'm curious is like, you know, okay, uh, what is the thing? What is the executive order that uh, people should be thinking about, like drafting? Because clearly like, you know, assume this is now I feel like an economist, like assume a world <laughs> in which, um, you know, suddenly there's there's like, a, you know, a, a purge of like the liberal technocrats, which there won't be. But like, let's assume that like we can, you know, make make a pitch for something else, something beyond this terrible way of doing, you know, policy. Um, like, what would that be? Like, my thinking is, you know, drop all of these standards and you know, let agencies figure something else out on their own. Um, you know, don't, don't put too many parameters on it. Let them, let them figure out what regulatory analysis is going to look like ad hoc. Um, but then there's other sort of things. I mean, just, I'm curious, like what your thoughts are and like what, what happened in the symposium, where, where do people think this should go? Great question. I, I have like three angles on it. One is, you know, we may have a concern that regulators may like unintentionally or inadvertently entirely put a business out of business. And, you know, and, and there's an actual an old administrative law case called Nova Scotia versus FDA, which was about canned fish. And, you know, the FDA had too strict a standard to avoid botulism. And it, it actually was one of those records, but it really did. It really was. It, it, it sounds funny, but they had a very strict standard that, you know, um, for a problem that had not been that big a problem in the canned fish industry. And the, the courts just said, look, you've got to acknowledge if you're going to put somebody entirely out of business and, you know, or acknowledge, uh, demonstrate how it's practicable for the regulated entities to, to abide by this. But I think that's okay. You know, that's like something that I think is is a relatively, you know, it is, but it's not about sort of trying to say we can figure out everything, but it's just about saying we are not going to, you know, unnecessarily or inadvertently put uh, large numbers of people out of business. Um, on the second hand side of this, I mean, scenario analysis is good, right? I mean, you could sort of say, here's our picture, our narrative picture of what the world looks like with our regulation and what it looks like without the regulation and write it up in a fair way. And, you know, and then a court, the, the way the courts review some of these decisions is, are they arbitrary and capricious? Is the rule arbitrary and capricious? Is the adjudication, was it based on substantial evidence? And, and but for, we're mainly talking about rules now and, and these rules, you could do the scenario analysis of the rules. Um, and it's amazing when I present that sort of idea, I get such, you know, uh, concerned looks, you know, like a narrative, like narrative. And, and what is that? Like, Tell a story. Words. Yeah, you know, but, but there's, there's actually wonderful work by people like Jens Becker and Richard Bronk on narrative economics. I mean, mm-hmm. there was work of Deirdre McCloskey on rhetoric and economics. You know, there's a lot of work out there, economic sociology. The, the bottom line to me is that there is, there are far more rigorous expert academic insights on commercial life and on money and value than we can find in quantitative economics or modeling economics or econometrics, right? And I think that those, bringing those voices in 
um, to the conversation is great. And, you know, it, it, it may be, and, and they can contribute just as much to policy rationality. But I will say there's a tension in my own point of view, because on the one hand, I've critiqued cost-benefit analysis for being just mucking up the administrative process. And on the other hand, I've said, well, here are some academic approaches to, to doing policy evaluation that may themselves take up some time. Hmm. But I think we can balance between those two, you know, and we can find a way that is going to lead to rigorous and thoughtful policy evaluation, but that doesn't hinge on the faux objectivity of putting a number on every cost and every benefit. No, I think in that that faux objectivity is like we keep um, coming to this preference, I think, over and over where it's like the the objectivity is seen as somehow superior. Anything that sort of addresses the material concerns or is almost described as being like a hysterical policy, right? And and I think these these preferences keep playing out under the assumption that we can continue to like do harm and not address harms that we're doing, say, to the environment or through, you know, lack of access to healthcare, and that society will just continue to reproduce and move on. Right. And there's, I think, this assumption that there's nothing we can do to like really fuck up the chances of society continuing and, and cost benefit analysis really hinges on that. But I think the the downstream effects of like what this does, and there's an, an example that you bring in about um, you know, like uh, accidents at nuclear facilities, right? That there that there are like actual harms that are really not being quantified. And I think COVID is a really good example of that. Could we get into um, specifically, you know, the harms that have been done by using cost benefit analysis in COVID? Maybe it's sort of a way to wrap out and close things off. I'm so glad you brought up COVID. And, you know, now I'm actually kicking myself for not bringing it into the symposium because (laughs) the whole frame of the economy versus public health is probably the best example of a huge social misstep that was due to um, uh, cost benefit type thinking. Right. And of course, the, the classic example of that was Richard Epstein. Right. Where Richard oh, Epstein yes. had that that sort of was apparently circulated some uh, posted something and circulated something else that at first I think estimated there would be 500 deaths from COVID in the U.S. Yeah. And then then 5,000, like 5,000 was like, oh, OK, yeah, yeah, about 5,000. But, you know, so orders of magnitude off um, uh, in terms of an assessment of the potential risk here. And, you know, just to, to flip it a bit, you know, to, to because of that orders of magnitude error, incredible underestimation of the benefits of um, massive intervention. And I think that that's a, that's, and I think there, the countries that really did best were the ones that just said, we are going to stop this. And it's going to, maybe it's going to take society-wide coordination. Maybe it's going to cost a lot of people, a lot of money in business, but we're going to stop it. And I think when the history is written, and of course we're still, still in the midst of it. But I think when the history is written of this, you know, once we have our can truly be said to be post pandemic, um, it's, uh, we're going to see many countries that avoided that type of public health versus the economy cost benefit framing um, with so many fewer deaths than right. the countries that had it. And I think that's, that's one measure. Um, if we see lots of long COVID side effects, and th- that's another example here where it's like, the idea of, of long COVID, you know, really helps show the contestation involved in both the cost and benefit side. 
right. because, you know, mm-hmm. you, did we think about that? I mean, I knew people that were telling their students in early 2020, don't worry. You know, this is mainly something that affects older people. Um, <laughs> their life is pretty much, but, but of course they did have to wear on two levels. One that they, they got severely disrupted with, you know, all of the um, classes being taken offline and the rest. And second, I mean, some will get long COVID. Some will have effects that will, you know, leave them winded and, and, and die. Them. Yeah. Die. Yeah. yeah. And we'll die. You know, and, and that I think is, is really um, a, a, a huge problem. And really you could, you could write some of the history of, of COVID as the um, uh, subversion of, of an ethical and moral response by the the faux objectivity and neutrality and rationality of an economic response. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I mean that that well, I think the thing is that moral and ethical intuition among people who have very high places in regulatory agencies and government, you know, has been displaced for years. I mean, and that and that's really the sort of and I mean, look, uh, if like, and it is a sin. Not just of the people like at the top in power, but of the training schools uh, that that recapitulate and perpetuate this. I mean, they are guilty of this. They have to I mean, like there has to be a reckoning on that uh, because they're training people that end up staffing government at all levels. I mean, it's the the, the sin is vast. Right. I mean, this is like yeah. I mean, this is like just a little symposium, but it, it felt so good to read because I, I cannot recall seeing you know, I mean, like, yeah, you get a law review article every couple of years and people are like, wow, that's interesting. But like, you know, the, in a, the full frontal assault needs to be waged. Yeah. I mean, I think it's true. And I think that, you know, there, I, I recall um, reading in a, a, a book by I think it was Deborah Stone called The Policy Paradox, which is very interesting because I think she this was from a book, I think, from the 90s. But she anticipated a lot of these problems that we're discussing today. Um, in, in terms of the, you know, how we do policy evaluation and how we uh, move forward on that. And yeah, there's, there's something about, one thing I like to also bring up in my health law class is on never events, right? Like we learn about malpractice and we learn about how often it's difficult to win a malpractice case because of the difficulty of proving a standard of care um, in a particular situation. But there are some things called never events, like if someone leaves a sponge in someone after a surgery or, you know, a wrong leg, mm-hmm. wrong leg amputation or something like that. Those are never events and they're just ipso facto. They're obviously wrong. And I think this ability to sort of point out things that are just a never event that are part of our lives that should, should never have happened, um, that we've got to cultivate that. We can't because I think a lot of what professional training is often consisted in is Oh yes, you come to law school with your passions and your moral judgments and the rest, and we show you how complicated it is, and we show you how to nuance everything and how you know, etc. And and sometimes that's correct, but but often the person comes in, their initial intuitions are correct, and they're, they're right to say that certain <laughs> ways that things are, are happening now are, are unacceptable. Yeah. Um, I guess I one question that I would have uh, for you then, I think this is appropriate for being towards the sort of end of the conversation is. Um, I know, and I think even there, it's referenced in a bunch of the pieces within the symposium is that there is, for those who do maybe critically consider, uh, the role of cost benefit analysis in society and in the political economy, 
there are a couple of, you know, there are a couple of reasonable responses that people have, which are, you know, as we're talking about, I think it's a, you know, good idea to move on from it or undo it or think of something else that we could do. I guess, what do you, what do you say to the people who say something like, well, you know, it is inculcated, it is naturalized. Um, what if we just, you know, made the focus be on the benefit side more? What if we reformed it? You know, what do you, what, I guess, what, like, what, what do you kind of, um, what, what are your like, uh, thoughts on like how, how to sort of dissuade maybe that perspective? I'm very torn on that perspective because I feel like there is, I think that the, 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 the it is so deeply rooted right now in the Office for Information, the Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs, I think part of its professional identity is so deeply rooted there. And it's so hard to say, um, eliminate a given um, subdivision of the executive branch. Although I guess uh, Trump did that for the pandemic preparedness. So uh, he, he picked the perfect one. But, I mean, the, the problem is, I think, and, and I think the other problem is, and what is really, really embedded it deeply in the policy apparatus is that OMB has some essential functions. You know, you have to have some level of coordination of uh, budgetary requests and all the rest, you know, in, a, in an administration. And so, you know, there, you're not going to be able, I think, to, to entirely... Uh, repopulate the personnel in, or, or the desk officers uh, who are particularly doing this type of analysis. So I think that, you know, although, I mean, it's possible. I mean, I guess I should never say never, but it would be possible. I think that there, uh, one of the things that I've tried to do in my work is to try to find some bridge between the incrementalists and the people that want to really um, change everything. And, and, and I've, I've tried to find that, that sort of bridge between people that want to MMT folks and those that are just your sort of normal Keynesian expansionist uh, viewpoint. And I think there's a possibility to bridge the people that just that want to um, incrementally improve cost benefit analysis, uh, you know, for example, by mandating the inclusion of co-benefits in that earlier example that I mentioned. But you're right to ask the question, though, because if it is the case that by the very structure of the legal mandate, I could, we can only get, say, the Biden OIRA, um, which runs CBA, to mandate inclusion of cost benefits for its uh, for the Biden administration. But if there's another Trump or Cotton or whatever administration coming up, um, they can't mandate that they consider co-benefits. At that point, then, I think... I mean, I guess now you're backing me up into the point of saying that probably improving it is not worthwhile. I mean, that's personally how I feel, because I just feel yeah, like innately, yeah. I mean, even in, you know, I don't know, even in one of like, I think literally one of the pieces in the symposium, for example, literally just begins with, well, as we all know, as we've discussed in the rest of the symposium, uh, cost benefit analysis is ableist, classist and racist. So uh, probably we should consider something else. Also, on top of that, I think that I don't know. I mean, obviously, uh, you know, we have a we talk, I think often actually about how thinking about more expansive uh, possibilities that do absolutely exist within, you know, massive societal change are, th are the things to maybe argue the most directly for, right? I mean, things like Medicare for all, for example, we talk all the time about the, the, the problems within the problems inherent in a lot of uh, situations with like incremental change, et cetera. But one of the things that we talk about a lot too, is just how as 
Phil mentioned before, um, statistical evaluation, valuation of life and all a number of other things. I mean, you mentioned Deborah Stone. Deborah Stone also has this um, really interesting book called The Disabled State that I think might have been from before that, uh, mm. before, the, before the book that you mentioned, um, yeah, really which is good. basically, you know, questioning the fundamental framework of how we kind of value I'm, I haven't read it in a while, so I'm, I'm sort of paraphrasing something. I'm, I'm may, I may be misremembering slightly, but basically, how we, you know, questioning how we value the deservingness of disabled people and other and people for welfare, et cetera. And I think that this, to me, gets to, to that kind of like fundamental question, which is within fu- cost benefit analysis. I think um, there are, yeah, maybe there, maybe there can be some concepts from inside it that could be useful in something else. But I do think that the sort of overall framework has has been used and inculcated so long for such uh for such specific ideological purposes that it as a sort of uh framework it is fundamentally flawed because i think the framework itself has become you know synonymous with or has has uh has taken as kind of like natural components of its like very being i guess a bunch of these frameworks, which basically are about, you know, the valuation of certain types of life over others, mm-hmm. um, the valuation of certain types of, as we have talked about, uh, social activity, the value, the valuation of, um, economic activity over life. Yeah, no, I see that entirely. I mean, I, and I do think, I mean, it's, it's, it reminds me a lot of current debates, right? Because you could say, for example, with, um, um, healthcare, uh, in general, like what role for private insurers, Right. Right. And even if you had the most ingenious scheme of insurance regulation, which we certainly don't have right now, right? <laughs> even if you had a really brilliant scheme of insurance regulation, you'd still say, wait a second, you know, there's still this entity in there <laughs> that continually has an effort, has an interest in eroding the government right. of health insurance because it's it looks better by comparison. To, to me, not to, sorry to interrupt you. To me, that, that uh, question is like the, um, can we contain the like the xenomorph from alien like can we keep the alien in the ship can the whalian dutani corporation in fact (laughs) profit off of the alien as a biological weapon without endangering all mankind (laughs) sorry please continue and I mean, it is, and it reminds me as well of like, I mean, I was teaching, this, there was this little nugget in my health law casebook. I was teaching health law last week that was about, um, they said, well, why did the the class act and the affordable care act, you know, just die this ignominious death, like the long-term care provisions, of the affordable care act just were, you know, just, just kind of, uh, were just scuttled, you know, and part of it in the casebook was said, and my casebook I teach from is pretty, uh, centrist, pretty technocratic itself and market oriented, but it talked about the long-term care insurers didn't want to see that right. Long-term care insurers didn't want to see a government rule in long-term yeah. care. And similarly with higher ed finance, right. That you could have the, the reason why income-based repayment is so terrible uh, and why interest rates on federal loans get, keep getting pushed way above what the federal government's cost of lending is, is because the private lenders want to get back in there. They want to, you know, be the, the primary mode there. Um, so that I think is, is yeah. I mean, I think if you could, you can definitely tell, tell a story whereby um, there's just no way to improve this to the point where it's actually going to lead to um, uh, good policy outcomes. I can, I can see that argument. I mean, I, I, I've got to think more deeply about, uh, I, I think that it, it, there's still work to be done though in the interim, as long as it's around in terms of stopping some of the worst uh, examples of it, but it could be that. Right. right yeah. 
we're under no obligation to give an example of it. Well, the best of it. Yeah, but yeah. it's but also, I mean, like we're just really talking about what happens inside the regulatory state. I mean, the convention in let like legislative analysis of uh you know health policy is at this point just cost cost analysis i mean it's like the, the idea i mean just like the number the voluminous number of pages from like the commonwealth fund that don't talk for a second about the benefits of any like major health it's, it's just you know uh there's there's so much to be done and it i think what the really important piece is that like it now needs to be the case that this these sorts of practices are just treated as the deeply problematic things that they are and the non-naturalized things that they are and like basically it's like every textbook should have you know should there are pages that should be ripped out asterisks that should be written just like you know uh not to be too dead poet society about it but like i did in teaching policy analysis i always have a moment where like ah oh, rip out you this page on the table but it's, it's you, true i yeah. mean but it's but it is the case that like the, the the first thing before we can get to you know this any of these solutions is that like it has to become seen as the common sense that all of these things are are you know a very, very, very bad and actually perverse at what they're trying to do. Yeah. Yeah. No, I I think that that's a, it is, it is, we really have to fundamentally reconsider that, that policy evaluation. And I I will turn back to that Deborah Stone book on the disabled state. That sounds fascinating. So thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, And Frank, thank you so much for coming on and taking the time to talk to us and also for um, your work on the symposium, because, you know, everyone should go and read all of these pieces. Yeah. Fantastic. Totally agree. Yeah. Really, really good to read. Absolutely. Each and every piece better than the last. Oh, you're welcome. Thank and thanks so much. This has been such a great, I've really enjoyed the conversation. So thank yeah, you. Yeah, likewise. Oh, so long overdue to have you on finally. Thank you so much. And thank you, Frank. Um, patrons, thank you so much, as always, for supporting the show and our work. We couldn't do any of this without you. Don't forget to use code for a discount in the merch store. And if you want to help us out a little bit more, you can always share the show with your friends, post about your favorite episodes, or follow us at deathpanel underscore. We'll catch you later in the week in the main feed. As always, Medicare for all now. Solidarity forever. Stay alive another week. Way.